there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Hello, Marion. I didn't expect to find you here all by yourself. W.R. left you all alone? Something like that. May I join you? Of course. (laughs) Whoops. Nearly sat on this. Is this Charlie's? Yes, he just ran out. (laughs) This has got to be the most famous hat in the world. (sighs) A little tight, but it'll do. What do you think? It does not suit you. Don't be mean. Look, international comedian my eye... Here I am, the little tramp. Stop it, Tom. You really are a terrible impressionist. Not that bad. Look, I can do the walk. No. No! Tom! Tom! Someone call for Dr. Goodman! What have you done? You may not recognize the name Thomas Ince, but you're almost certainly familiar with his work. Ince was an influential and prolific character in the early days of Hollywood's budding film industry. He was by turns an actor, a director, a screenwriter, and a producer of silent films. One of the original Hollywood multi-hyphenates. Long before J.J. Abrams, there was Thomas Ince. Ince's greatest legacies include the establishment of the first film studio and the creation of the Western as we know it. He also developed the role of the movie producer and standardized the screenplay format that is used to this day. Over the past century, the circumstances surrounding Ince's death have become the stuff of Hollywood legend. The story goes that William Randolph Hearst threw Ince a fabulous 44th birthday party aboard his own yacht. 
but in a fit of confusion and jealous rage during the party, Hearst shot Inns and had the murder covered up in his papers. The scenario reads like an Agatha Christie novel. A millionaire invites a fabulous cast of characters aboard his yacht for a dinner party, and one of them ends up dead. But who is to blame? Was it the millionaire himself? His beautiful mistress. Her movie star boyfriend. His personal valet. The doctor. The gossip columnist. Or a jilted young woman, desperate and at the end of her rope. No one knows for certain. What we do know is that on Sunday, November 16, 1924, Thomas Ince boarded the yacht in seemingly perfect health. But just hours later, he was carried out on a stretcher, clinging to life. Where's the ambulance? He's losing blood. This man needs medical attention immediately. Ambulance is on the way, sir. Call Nell. Call my wife. Have her bring Dr. Glasgow. Save your strength. We've already sent for your wife. (sighs) On November 19th, Ince died at home. The death certificate listed the cause of death as heart failure. But morning headlines at the LA Times declared movie producer shot. And conflicting reports from several witnesses set the rumor mill spinning. Sounds like journalism hasn't learned much in the past hundred years. Well, some things never change. <laughs> By the afternoon, those headlines were gone. Someone figured out it wasn't true? Possibly. Or maybe it's evidence of an attempt at a cover-up. To add to the mystery, Ince's body was quickly cremated, destroying any hope of uncovering forensic evidence over time. Well, that certainly makes it a tougher mystery to solve. But that doesn't discourage us from trying to find out what really happened to Thomas Ince. Some accounts say that it was indigestion that brought on his heart attack. Is that even possible? That question is exactly why plenty of people still believe that there was something more nefarious going on. Well, there's also the possibility that alcohol was involved. But this took place during Prohibition. Mm Mm-hmm. And no one wanted to admit to the authorities that they had been drinking. These are just a few of the unanswered questions surrounding the death of Thomas Ince. Join us as we dive deeper into the case and try to find out what really happened to the Maverick movie producer. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. You're listening to our first episode on the case of Thomas Ince. If you want to hear our investigation into other cold cases, you can listen subscribe, and write reviews on your favorite podcast directory. You can also listen through our website, parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. And I'm your host, Carter Roy. And now, back to the mysterious death of Thomas Ince. Thomas Ince was born on November 16, 1882, in posh Newport, Rhode Island. At the time, Newport was famous for being the summer vacation destination for some of the wealthiest people in America. The Vanderbilts, the Astors, and the Wideners all built lavish homes there. But Ince was born into significantly humbler accommodations. He was the second of four children in a real showbiz family. Mr. and Mrs. Ince were actors who performed both on the road and on Broadway. Young Thomas was only six years old when he joined his parents on stage. 
All right, Tommy, are you ready? Yes, Mama. Do you remember all your lines? I think so. Just like we practiced, when Papa waves his hat, that's your cue to go on. Yes, Mama. They are going to love you. I just know it. Go on, then. Ince grew up in the theater. And in 1907, he surprised no one when he married an actress. Eleanor Kershaw, whom everyone called Nell. Together, she and Thomas had three children, all boys. To supplement his income as an actor, Ince worked as an office boy and even formed his own vaudeville company. Which was a miserable failure. But Ince was undeterred. He went on to become an intrepid entrepreneur in the budding East Coast film industry. Ince worked as an actor for the Biograph Company in New York, where he met the director D.W. Griffith, known best for his silent films like Way Down East and the controversial Birth of a Nation. Griffith took a shine to Ince and hired him as a production coordinator. A coordinator is a position that still exists today. It's a lower level position in the hierarchy of filmmaking, but a vital one, and a great way to learn firsthand what it takes to make a movie. After Biograph, Ince went on to work for Carl Lemley at the Independent Motion Picture Company. Ince's lucky break came when one of the directors had to abandon his work on a small feature film. What am I going to do? That good-for-nothing director's leaving me in a real jam here. I've got the rest of the cast and crew all lined up to start shooting in a week. I'll do it. You? You're not a movie director. Not yet, but I have directed for the stage. Hire me full-time and I will prove it to you. You have got true grit, haven't you? I like to think so, sir. I guess we'll see about that. If all goes well, I'll send you down to Cuba to do some shorts with the new girl. What's her name? Uh, Pickford. Mary Pickford. I'm on my way to Cuba. Lemley took to shooting in Cuba to get far away from Thomas Edison and his monopolistic film trust. The Edison Trust was founded in 1908 and it did a lot of good for the American film industry. It standardized the methods of distribution and exhibition and improved the quality of the content of American films. Before the trust, most films were made in Europe. Edison put the American film industry on the map. But Edison was fiercely protective of his creations and famous for being relentlessly litigious if he felt that anyone threatened his reign as the king of American cinema. He hired Pinkerton detectives to investigate perceived competitors. And it's rumored that he hired men to destroy and sabotage any and all independent productions. Even back then, indie filmmaking was a challenge. When Edison and his trust turned up the heat on the competition, many of the East Coast filmmakers, including Ince, made plans to go west. Southern California was ideal for shooting outdoors. Dry weather, abundant sunlight, and diverse landscapes could double for the sands of Egypt or the mountains of the Himalayas. Most importantly, it was thousands of miles away from Edison and his men, who were based out of northern New Jersey. Our story will continue in a moment, after the break. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Now our story continues. In the early fall of 1911, Thomas Ince walked into Bison Studios. The newly established satellite office of the New York Motion Picture Company. Excuse me, my name is Thomas Ince. Charles Bauman. Pleased to meet you, Ince. Light? Thank you. Well, I'm... We know who you are. When can you start? Pardon me? How soon can we get you to sign on here as a director? You cut right to the chase, don't you? We make cowboy pictures here at Bison Studios, and cutting to the chase is what we're all about. <clears throat> as flattered as I am by the offer, I'm afraid I'll need to find out a bit more before I sign anything. I can offer you three months at a buck fifty a week. A dollar and fifty cents? <laughs> I know this is a fledgling industry and all, but I am a family man, and I will require somewhat more substantial compensation. <laughs> no, no, no. A hundred and fifty dollars, not one and a half. We're selling flickers out here, not shoelaces. What do you say to that? Later, Ince described signing with Bison Studios. The offer came as a distinct shock, but I kept cool and concealed my excitement. Very soon after that, with Mrs. Ince, my cameraman, property man, and my leading woman, I turned my face westward. I was soon shocked to discover that the studio was nothing more than a tract of land, graced by only a four-room bungalow and a barn. Ince was disappointed, so he went further west. He was already in Los Angeles. You can't go any further without falling into the Pacific. Uh, well, in the early days, all of the first movie studios were in the eastern part of the city, what's now known as Echo Park. So how much further west did he go? About 30 miles, right to the coast. He happened upon a 460-acre piece of land in the Santa Monica Mountains that he managed to rent by the day. By the following year, Ince had earned enough money to purchase an additional 18,000 acres. There, on the site of what is now Universal, Thomas Ince established his first studio. It was alternately called Inceville and Triangle Ranch, although it was officially named Miller 101 Bison Ranch Studio. That doesn't exactly roll off the tongue. I can see why they changed the name. Yeah, well, no matter what you call it, what Ince created was impressive. There were production offices, stages, film processing labs, a massive commissary, dressing rooms, prop houses, and elaborate sets all built from the ground up, all in one location. For his westerns, Ince leased an entire Wild West show. There were 300 cowhands, an entire Sioux Indian tribe, 600 horses, cattle, and other livestock. But he didn't stop there. Ince ordered construction on streets to be filled with various types of structures. There were Swiss cottages, an early colonial American settlement, a Japanese village. There was a series of mansions that mimicked the style and architecture of various cities throughout the world. There were fields for grain and garden produce, because there were a lot of mouths to feed. Ince himself lived in a house that overlooked the massive, bustling hive of activity. There he acted as the king of the entire ecosystem, organizing and overseeing every step of the filmmaking process from start to finish. 
By adopting an assembly line style of production, Inceville became the model for all Hollywood studios. This was significant because in the very early days, filmmaking really was the Wild West. Directors would go out to shoot a movie without any written plan, often making up their stories on the fly. All right, take your places over here under the tree. No, wait, let's try over by the waterfall. Yes, that will work better. Uh, Can you two swim? Good. Now, when I say action, you're going to leap into the water. But I thought this was supposed to be a love scene. I changed my mind. Places and action. As you can imagine, without a plan, the results were often hit or miss. And budgets spun wildly out of control. You spent how much on a llama? What did you even need a llama for? Since when is there a llama in Romeo and Juliet? Ince put the movie producer at the top of the chain, overseeing every step of the process. He began insisting that before a frame was shot, production submit a script detailing the events of what they planned to film. Well, that way each item could be planned and accounted for. One milkmaid costume? Got it. Three cows in a Swiss cottage? No problem. Stampede of elephants? Not in the budget. He also divided up the roles of screenwriter, director, and producer, whereas before, one person did everything. Ince's creation of the role of production manager really helped things fall into place. Quiet on the set. If producers have a bird's eye view of the filmmaking process, production managers are the boots on the ground. They're the ones who keep the process running, preferably under budget and on time. All right, that's lunch. Everybody take five. With everyone's position clearly defined and the production process running like clockwork, the studio's output increased from one to three two-reel movies every week. Each picture was written, shot, and cut in under seven days, which fed the increasing demands of the film-crazy public. In 1913 alone, Ince made over 150 movies, most of them westerns. As Ince transitioned to producing full-time, he stopped directing his own movies and instead hired directors like Francis and John Ford and William Desmond Taylor, whose name may ring a bell if you're a frequent listener to this podcast. William Desmond Taylor was the subject of the first great Hollywood scandal when he was discovered murdered in his own home. If you'd like to learn more about that case, check out episodes four and five of Unsolved Murders. By 1915, Ince was at the top of his game and left the New York Motion Picture Company to partner with other industry hotshots, D.W. Griffith and Max Sennett. Their triangle motion picture lot later became MGM and is now the location of Sony Picture Studios. Wow. Universal, MGM, and Sony. This guy was really an influencer. Well, you forgot Paramount. Of course, I left out Paramount. Yep, but we're not quite there yet. The Triangle Company was one of the first vertically integrated film companies. By controlling production and distribution, it became one of the most dynamic studios in the game, attracting stars like Mary Pickford, Lillian Gish, Fatty Arbuckle, and Douglas Fairbanks. At this point, you could say that Ince was crushing it on all fronts. It was after leaving Triangle that he partnered with Adolf Zucker to help with the founding of what would become Paramount Pictures. It didn't take long, but Ince missed the freedom of running his own studio. Listen, Adolf, I know this is going to be difficult to hear, and believe me, it's difficult to say. So, don't say it. I believe it would be best for me and for the company if we part ways. Take a break, Tom, by all means. You work too hard. Rest, relax, then you come back. No, Adolf, I mean permanently. What? 
You want more money? We'll make plenty of money. I'll give you more money. We'll all have more money. No, I'm happy to report it isn't about the money. What, you want to make more pictures? Okay, we improve the system. We make more pictures. You can get back to directing. That's not it either. The truth is that I like producing and I feel like I've found my niche in it. I miss the work. I miss being the head of my own company. We are the heads of the company. You are my partner in this. Our hardworking days are behind us and now we supervise. We say yes, no, then we go play a round of golf. We worked our fingers to the bone to build this machine and now it runs itself. That's just the thing. I don't want to just let the machine run itself. I want to be there fixing every cog and tightening every loose screw. I want to feel like it's my own. Like the picture's my own. You'll have to start from scratch all over again. Don't you see? That's my favorite part. So, in 1918, Ince bought another parcel of land and set up Thomas H. Ince Studios just down the road from the Triangle lot. He continued to make some significant movies, but he didn't have the kind of power he once had as an independent producer. The studio system that Ince had helped to create was taking over Hollywood and squeezing out the competition. It was now far too big and powerful for one man to compete with. Still, Ince continued to wheel and deal with some of the biggest names in media at the time. Including the newspaper mogul, William Randolph Hearst. Papers! Get your papers! Papers here! Hearst had already dominated the world of newspapers and magazines before setting his sights on Hollywood. It's important to note that while W.R. was famous for working in newspapers, he was hardly a model of journalistic integrity. Mm, In fact, quite the opposite. It's been a few years since I studied American history, but do you remember the term yellow journalism? Vaguely. Sensationalism, right? Something about the Spanish-American War? That's right. Yeah, Hearst got rich and famous by selling papers with eye-catching headlines that made wild and unfounded claims. Ooh, fake news. Exactly. If there was something that Hearst wanted to happen, he'd start publishing stories about it as if it were already happening. And then, suddenly, it would. Oh, that's right. He and Joseph Pulitzer were battling it out to sell the most papers, so they ran stories about terrible things happening in Cuba, which eventually led to the Spanish-American War. Hearst said there was a war going on, and then the war started. Now that's a man with a lot of power. Yeah, he was. And his flippant attitude toward the truth made his transition to show business seem natural. When he decided to get into movies, Hearst formed Cosmopolitan Pictures along with the help of Adolf Zucker at Paramount. Hence's former partner. Paramount let Hearst use their stages, actors, and equipment to make their own movies. In return, Paramount got the rights to film any story that appeared in one of Hearst's magazines or newspapers. That included Harper's Bazaar, Good Housekeeping, and, of course, Cosmo. And then the magazines could run ads for the movies made by the production company. Very clever. Another reason Hearst got into the movie business was to promote his mistress, comedian Marion Davies. If you're familiar with the movie Citizen Kane, based on the life of W.R. Hearst, you may remember the character of his mistress, Susan Alexander. In the movie, Susan Alexander is a talentless singer, but Charles Foster Kane pours money into developing her musical career. That on-screen relationship has a lot in common with the real-life Hearst and his mistress, but differs in one major way. Marion Davies was a legitimately talented actress. Marion already had a career as a leading lady when she began her relationship with the married Hearst. 
But one year after they started seeing each other, he financed the studio and took over the management of her career. It was clear that getting into the movie industry made good business sense at the time. But it also seems like Hearst set up the studio just for Marion. She made both silent films and talkies there, appearing in a total of 46 titles. And of course, the Hearst magazines and newspapers heavily promoted the beautiful movie star. Hearst started running stories about how charming and popular Marion was. And then she was. See the beautiful, the magnificent, the captivating Miss Marion Davies in her latest film role as Cecilia of the Pink Roses. Although Hearst never got a divorce from his wife, he and Marion were together, and pretty publicly so, from about 1917 until his death in 1951. And when it came to Marion, he was also notoriously paranoid, irrational, and jealous. About their relationship, Marion once said, God, I'd give everything I have to marry that silly old man. Not for the money and security. He's given me more than I'll ever need. Not because he's such cozy company, either. Most times when he starts jawing, he bores me stiff. And certainly not because he's so wonderful behind the barn. Why, I could find a million better lays any Wednesday. No, you know what he gives me, sugar? He gives me the feeling I'm worth something to him. A whole lot of what we have or don't have, I don't like. He's got a wife who'll never give him a divorce. She knows about me, but it's still understood that when she decides to go to the ranch for a week or a weekend, I've got to vamoose. And he snores, and he can be petty, and he has sons about as old as me. But he's kind, and he's good to me, and I'd never walk out on him. Which is all to say that Hearst had no problem manipulating the press to his advantage. And he would go to great lengths to protect and support those he loved especially his leading lady. Our story will continue in a moment after the break. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan Family Killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now, the story continues. Hearst and Ince began negotiating a deal so that Cosmopolitan Pictures could use the facilities at Ince's new studio. Hearst visited Ince at his Benedict Canyon home on Saturday, November 15th, and invited him to join him aboard his yacht, the Oneida, to work out the details of the deal and for a party to celebrate Ince's birthday the next day. Thanks for making your way over here, old boy. Especially on a Saturday. Any plans for the weekend? Oh, we're taking the yacht out for a little jaunt up the coast this evening into tomorrow. What about yourself? Actually, it's my birthday tomorrow. So I'm sure my wife will want to cook something ghastly and make it a family affair. 
Well, happy birthday, old man. But a man should do what he likes on his birthday. Come with me on the yacht. We'll get some balloons. I'll have Sheffy make a cake. We'll make a real celebration. Marion will be thrilled. <laughs> That's very kind of you to offer. It's not an offer. It's an order. You're the guest of honor, and I'll expect you to be there. Otherwise, I'll have the journal print an expose about how movie director Thomas Ince is brazenly rude. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be there. Ince actually missed the ship's departure from San Pedro on Saturday night. The following morning, Ince took a train to San Diego and joined up with the partiers. There's a photo of Marion Davies standing on the ship's deck from that day, wearing a captain's hat and greeting the birthday boy with armfuls of balloons at the dock in San Diego. It's hard to say who else exactly was on the boat, because there was no official manifest or listing. But in addition to Hearst and Davies, various reports named Marion's assistant, Abigail Kinsolving. The author, Eleanor Glenn, was aboard, as was Ince's rumored mistress, Margaret Livingston. The dancer, Theodore Kosloff, Hearst's production manager, Dr. Daniel Carson Goodman, and a few other actors rounded out the party. And in addition to the usual staff and crew, a live jazz band was hired to serenade the revelers. One of Hearst's writers from New York was also aboard the boat, the movie columnist Luella Parsons. Remember that name because it comes up again. Lastly, there was Charlie Chaplin and his longtime assistant, Toriachi Kono. It's rumored that Hearst had only invited Chaplin along so that he could observe how Charlie and Marion interacted together. There were rumors swirling that the two had been sleeping together, and the possessive Hearst wanted to see for himself if it was true. Say, Charlie, don't you think Marion looks ravishing this evening? <laughs> I think she looks ravishing. Indeed, she does. Stop it, W.R. Stop what? You know exactly what, and I'll ask you to stop once more before you embarrass yourself. Embarrass? Who's embarrassed? I don't have anything to be embarrassed of. Charlie, do you? Mm, not at the moment. See, Marion? You're being hysterical. There's nothing to worry about. If anyone needs to feel embarrassed, maybe it's you for making such accusations against your lover and benefactor. Chaplin was a notorious womanizer throughout his life until he settled down with his fourth wife when he was in his 50s. And so the rumors were true. Uh, it's impossible to say. Once Ince was embarked on the Oneida, the details become hazy due to conflicting witness accounts. The guests assembled to celebrate Ince's birthday over dinner. <laughs> And although this was during Prohibition, it was an open secret that alcohol was served. Can I pour another drink for the man of the hour? I really should stop. Oh, don't be daft, man. It's your birthday. Another round. Oh, he's a jolly good fellow, for he's a jolly good fellow. According to his widow, sometime after dinner, Ince suffered an acute bout of indigestion. This due to a combination of salted almonds and champagne. What? Uh, apparently they exacerbated his peptic ulcers. Tom? Tom, are you feeling all right? You don't look so hot. I hate to be a wet blanket, but to be perfectly honest, no. I do not feel well at all. Send word to the captain. We need to dock immediately. Don't be silly, Goodman. It's just a little indigestion. Too much rich food. Well, that may be true, but I don't want to chance it. We need to get you back on dry land. Ince was a workaholic, and the years of tireless trailblazing were sure to have had some stress-induced side effects. 
Goodman was a doctor, but had left the practice to work in movies. Nonetheless, he went with Ince on the train to Del Mar, where he was checked into a hotel and treated by a second doctor. Ince then called his personal physician, his wife, and his oldest son to the hotel, and they took him back to their Benedict Canyon home, where he died. I do not understand how it happened. He was being treated for chest pains because of his angina, but he's had that for years and it never seemed that serious. I just don't understand what happened. (laughs) Years later, his son William became a physician and claimed that his father's condition was more likely a severe blood clot. Ince's personal physician signed the death certificate listing heart failure as the cause of death. Although, technically, aren't all deaths caused by heart failure? Your heart stops and you die. Yes, it can be used as a convenient catch-all description to make a death appear less suspicious than it might seem. So heart failure is the official story. But another version of events claimed that Ince was shot and Hearst pulled the trigger. According to the second story, Hearst was convinced that Davies and Chaplin were having an affair. He hung around the two of them on the ship, determined to catch them in an undeniable and compromising situation. Some say that he did find them together and drew his pistol on the spot. I caught you, you son of a bitch. How dare you? Apparently, Hearst fired his rhinestone-studded handgun once and missed completely. He had been aiming for Chaplin, but only managed to fire the gun into the wall where the bullet struck Ince in the next room. Another version has Ince meeting with Marion alone. Apparently, Chaplin had been there before him and left his signature bowler hat behind. Ince happened upon the scene of the forlorn Marion and donned the hat as he did his best Chaplin impression to cheer her up. Look, I'm the little tramp. But at just that moment, Hurst appeared brandishing his gun. He saw the figure of a man wearing Chaplin's hat and in a jealous rage, shot him on the spot. But it wasn't Chaplin at all. Blinded by his rage, Hearst accidentally shot and killed Thomas Ince, thinking it was Chaplin. This is the version of the story that has become Hollywood legend. Due in large part to the fact that the morning after Ince died, rumors started to fly. Extra! Extra! Movie producer shot dead on Hearst's yacht! LA Times exclusive! Would you look at that? I always knew that old bat was evil. I didn't think he had it in him to kill a man. Never underestimate the madness of a man in love. The morning edition of the LA Times published a story claiming that Inns had been shot in the head, but that version of events had disappeared by evening. I'm going to hazard that that wasn't a Hearst publication. Mm, That's right. At the time, the Los Angeles Times was owned by Hearst competitor, Harry Chandler, Was Chandler just looking to sully Hearst's name by casting suspicion on him as a murderer? Well, it could be. Or did Hearst really fire the bullet that ended Ince's life? Or did someone else pull the trigger? Well, who would want him dead? A business rival? A former employee? He is one man who managed to have a lot of success in an industry where others had failed. Or was it someone else? A former lover, perhaps? One thing that we know for sure is that from this point on, no one on the boat wanted to talk about what happened. Was it even a gun at all? Was Ince the victim of an unfortunate accident? Or was it really just a case of his poor health taking a turn for the worst? There's only one way to find out. Tune in next week for the conclusion of our investigation into the case of Thomas Ince. 
Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. If you like what you hear, leave a five-star review or tell us what you think on Facebook or Twitter at Parcast Network. A new episode comes out every Tuesday, and next Tuesday, we'll continue our investigation into the unexplained death of silent movie mogul Thomas Ince. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro and Kenny Hobbs, production assistance by Maggie Admire. Unsolved Murders is written by Lauren Cannon and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Kimberly Holland, Steve Pinto, Greg Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. <laughs>